This episode is brought to you by our wonderful patrons. If you enjoy the Coffee and Cocktails podcast, make sure to like, subscribe, and become a patron starting at one pound per month. By supporting the show, you get access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, panels, workshops, free merchandise, and much more. Just head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast and subscribe today. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the 40th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand, and welcome to our series, Giving Voice to the Voiceless, where today we have the pleasure of having at our studio again, Sonia Gulzab Abbasi, lecturer at Comstats University in Islamabad, Pakistan, as well as anthropology student at SOAS in London. If some of you remember, she spoke with us in our last season for episode 34, and if you get a chance, please check it out. This season, she's going to be talking to us about something different and rather important regarding Pakistan's identity crisis. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity again. Of course. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you were having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Sonia, would you like to start? Yes. I'm having coffee. For it's a pretty mug. I like that. It's a beautiful day today. Uh, in in UK, so I'm enjoying the weather, and I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. Yeah, well, I am as well. Um, I have to say for the listeners, so I was, um, I am, I should say, very new to this topic, and um, you know, every episode. I try to prep as well as I can, but there are going to be some topics that are going to require more work than others. This, I think, was one of those topics, but I, I. It was really interesting. I mean, one thing I'll say as a Westerner, and I'll know that we'll talk about this through the course of the episode, is we know very, very little about Pakistan, like like verging on nothing. And some of the articles that you sent me for me to read um, talk about how the basically the only things that get infiltrated into the West are terrorism, um, you know, Malala um, surviving a gunshot wound, uh, women's rights being infringed upon, and it makes it seem like it's this horrible place. And what I'm learning in having talked with you and having read this material is that it actually is a, is a wonderful place. It sounds like the cuisine is fantastic from what I've been reading, um, but that there is so much more to the country in terms of its mixed ethnicities, religions, etc. Um, but within that, there's um, a lot of complication in terms of what it means to be Pakistani today. So if we could, I'd like to start off with our first question and have us sort of open up with this idea of what does it mean to be Pakistani and why is that a question that is so hard to answer? All right. It's a bit, uh, thank you for a very interesting introduction. And it's a very interesting question as well, like what it means to be a Pakistani. There's not a simple answer to it because you know, like I'll come to my personal opinion about being how what it means to be a Pakistani. But first, I'll just talk about that on a general, you know, on a, a perspective that what it means to be a Pakistani for for all of the Pakistanis, right? So we'll go back to the history that we have multiple identities, right? We we are known as the child of the empire because we are a post-colonial state. Are we talking about the Ottoman Empire, though? 
Uh, yes, we have a, you know, Ottoman uh, post-colonial, etc. Yes, the Mughal Empire, the British Empire, and and then a lot of empires. You're a child exactly. of a lot of empires. Exactly. So we are known as the child of the empire because we are a post-colonial state, and then we are known as Muslim uh, Pakistani because you know Pakistan and India they parted their ways on the basis of the linguistic and religious uh, lines, right? And then we have a lot of um, regional identities as well. Like there are so many different regional identities, ethnic identities, ethnic minorities known as Pakhtun, Baloch, Sindhi. So, you know, when someone asks that what it means to be a Pakistani, there's not a simple, concrete answer. There's not a monolithic answer to it. Mm. So mm. We, we have been through so much history. And then, you know, we have a South Asian identity attached to it, it as well. Pakistani, South Asian, Muslim identity, and then the regional identities um, mm. in role as well. And if I could just give the listeners sort of like a comparison point, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. Um, some of our listeners come from America, so I'm, I'll be giving, using this as an example, and, and um, probably Italy just from personal understandings. So if we think about it from the US context, and then somebody were to say, what does it mean to be American? Um, I, I mean, sometimes I think of like terrible, you know, <laughs> like stereotypes, like hamburgers and guns and toting the American flag like a weirdo. But um, but if you really think about it in a, in a serious sense, um, that concept of a melting pot, or more accurately, a stew, where you have um, pockets of people who have their own sense of identity and it might be different in some remote part of Wisconsin as opposed to somebody who might have historical roots that come from another country and maybe their first or second generation or their Native American, for example. So um, I think in that context, what it means to air quote be American is going to be very different from person to person. Same if you were from Italy. People from the South have a very different series of identifiers as opposed to people in the North. And then even then the local identity is going to be extremely different than the supposed national identity. Would you say that that's accurate for Pakistan as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, Pakistani state tried to, you know, create a monolithic identity of Pakistan. You know, when mm. Pakistan came into being, when Pakistan idea was conceived, like I told you that it was based on the two, two nation theory that Pakistanis have a different culture, have a different religion. So mm. they needed a separate land from the Hindus residing in India. And mm. then Pakistan idea was came into being and executed that, you know, we, we cannot live with Hindu Hindus, we cannot practice our religion there. So this is the state monolithic identity was imposed by the state at the expense of the other, you know, uh, uh, identities. Mm. So, you know, till date, the state is trying to create this, that we have one nation, one language, one religion, one culture, which is mm. not helping, which is not helping at all. Because like I told you that Pakistan has a beautiful cultural diversity where there are Pakhtun, there are Baloch, there are Hazara people, there are Pathans. They're right? Bihari like yourself, correct? They're Bihari, right. Absolutely. Like myself. So, you know, right now I'm talking about, I'm giving you a general view of the identity, what Pakistani means for the most Pakistani. But for personally me, you know, whenever 
I try to, you know, I'm sort of a stuck up in identity crisis. I go back to my childhood, which is spent in a mountainous village with, and you know, the time spent with uh, with my grandmother, and that that idea of my idea of who I am was quite different from what Pakistani state tried to impose on us. Because you know, the idea which I got from my family was very multicultural. Because my grandmother, she used to narrate us stories of the partition, you know, pre-partition era where Hindu, Muslim, and Sikhs were Sikhs were living together in harmony. And mm. you know, she used to tell us that we had really good, you know, shopkeepers who were Hindus and Sikhs, and they were really nice people. And then you know, she was not very well bred woman, but she was very intelligent, and she knew that you know, British came and they sort of created this rift. Between Hindus and Muslims, and we parted our ways. Interesting. Was Interesting. aware of the colonial, you know, the remnants and the colonial hangover which people had till then. Mm. Mm. So you know, whenever I'm like I said that my before I went to the school and before the state curriculum, you know, tried to infuse this monolithic identity in me. I was very, I was raised very multicultural, you know. I was taught to be, you know, very tolerant towards other religion and to, you know, diversity. Because, like I told you, that my uh, grandmother, who I spent a lot of time with, my paternal grandmother, she was from the pre-partition era when India and Pakistan were together. Okay. Okay. Well, so, you know, the I think the the state, the identity which state tried to, you know, inculcate in us, that was, I think, very, I think, very sort of a shallow which couldn't you know help to shape my identity you sure. know i get back to my childhood to sort of uh, get back to my identity. and if we could expand on that um in terms of the state imposition of what identity should be as opposed to what it actually is um you've said that identity formation in pakistan involves including some identities while excluding others could you explain to our listeners what are quote unquote accepted forms of Pakistani identity and what are not and what the reasons are for this? Absolutely. Again, a very uh, interesting question and very pertinent. I'll just give you an example that, you know, in order to conceive this idea of creating one nation under one flag, one religion, and one language, Pakistan even lost a part of it, which is now present day known as Bangladesh. So Bangladesh was part of Pakistan uh, after partition. And you know, one of the biggest factors which led to the division of Bangladesh from Pakistan was that Bengalis wanted Bengali, Bangladeshi people wanted Bengali to be their official language as well. But Pakistani state was adamant that Urdu is the only official, you know, the national language of Pakistan. So on that basis, we lost a part of Pakistan, which is hmm. now known as Bangladesh. Interesting. And you know, the Pakistani state never learned their lessons from the history. And they that sort of a, a medium of, uh, you know, operating that strategy is still intact. Because, you know, there are a lot of minority ethnic backgrounds like Balochis and Pakhtuns. They have a lot of grievances against the Pakistani state because of this exactly reason, right? And I think that Pakistani state failed to, you know, 
find strength in their diversity. Mm. The other way around, you know. There are so many divisions, like I told you, that the Balochis, they are they have a strong grievances against Pakistani state, that they they don't accept our identities as Balochis, right? And again, the Pakhtuns have their own grievances against Pakistani state as well. Interesting. And Pakistani, the fact that Pakistani on the basis of the language and in a, in order to, you know, achieve this grand narrative of Pakistan that Pakistan will have only, you know, Urdu as its national language. And by the way, English and Urdu is the official language of Pakistan. The irony mm-hmm. that, you know, like there's a saying that my colonizer language is is stronger than my own language, my regional language. So English was imposed to us uh, during the um, uh, British era when the British came to subcontinent and, you know, India and they, you know, ruled over us. And they sort of, they sort of tried to obliterate the regional languages, right? And they created that Urdu in, I think, 1837, they declared Urdu as the national language of India and Hindustan, right? So Urdu is also... In, in, in certain terms, it's a colonial construct because there were so many Sanskrit and Persian and Arabic. There were so many diverse languages spoken before British came here in India and subcontinent. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's always a historical root to it, what is happening nowadays in Pakistan. And everything is tied to that colonial past which we had. If if we could expand on that as well, this idea of, of English and English being imposed on you and the school system. Um, You said that growing up, English was quote unquote, forced down your throat. What effects do you think this had not only on your psyche and therefore your identity, but also those of your peers? Again, it's a very, uh, it's a very sort of a intricate question, but again, it is part of my identity as well. For instance, I'll just try to give you an example that when I was in my undergraduate studies, I, I could not even speak a single word of English. And, you know, our university, it was compulsory to speak in English, to give presentation in English. There were certain professors which would give us this option that, okay, fine, you can also speak in English, but try to give your presentation in English. Oh, you mean you could also speak in Urdu? But you, Urdu, but, you know, like English and Urdu is the official language of Pakistan, by the okay. way. Urdu okay. is the national language, but English is one of the official languages. But they gave you the option to do both, correct? Yeah, but most of the uh, professor would prefer because our university was the English medium university. And, you know, I used to struggle a lot. And, you know, I had a great ideas to talk about. And, you know, English would bear me from speaking my mind. Because like mm-hmm. I told you that. I speak, I, I think in my regional language, which is Pahari, the language of mountains. And you know that I have to translate that thought into Urdu. And then I have to translate that thought into English before I speak it. Right. So I would just like to, you know, recite some sort of uh, words by B- Bill Fena. You speak good English, right? Do you know how many nights I've spent twisting your English off my tongue? I do not take pride in, in your in your English. I want to stumble on my words. I want to speak with an accent so thick that it requires silence. I want you to struggle to understand me. Realize your English is not superior. 
your english does not equate intelligence do not compliment me on how well i have accepted colonization i do not want your pat on the back i was forced to learn this language i did not choose to your english disconnects me from my own people mm i'm deaf to my own sacred language because of your english your english has done nothing for me it's a beautiful word by belfena you speak good uh, by the name of you speak good good english you know wow. in pakistan intelligence is equated with how good english you speak and when i grew up you know i i would admit that that you know even i accepted this believe that oh my god if he is a good english speaker he is very intelligent and trust me it took me years to deconstruct it it took mm. me years to unlearn this and yeah. obviously that sort of a rub on me as well this belief and there was a point that you know when i started practicing speaking english in front of mirror and it was that when i graduated from my university and when i uh, started you know my doing my mphil and I, i started working as well as a lecturer i used to practice and you know i used to feel guilty for not speaking good english mm 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 and you know there's so many like like i told you there's so many beautiful cultural regional languages and there's so many beautiful poetry written in sindhi punjabi balochi and in my own language language which i could not when i try to translate it into english it completely destroys the meaning of that yeah yeah i mean it's it's interesting you mention this so um when i was writing my doctoral thesis and then my book um one of the chapters cuz i i as you know i i work on language identity and one of the the big things i talk about is why people find it so difficult to learn another language and um i have a whole chapter where i focus on you know why do we learn another language and uh, one of the elements that comes up through that discussion later on in the book is this idea of language learning blocks and colonialism is a component of that in that instead of instilling the love of a language that you learn through choice or desire the fact that it's pushed on to people could actually prevent them psychologically from being able to move on in that language so case in point um where i lived uh in northern italy and south tyrol is uh predominantly german speaking uh so 70% german speaking 26% italian speaking and then 4% latin speaking and they are they're a mountain community and that is their language um There was an instance where I did an interview with uh, a German speaking teacher who speaks English. Interestingly, English is uh quite neutral because it doesn't have the colonial elements to it. It's seen more as a global language that'll help you get a job. So, it's different in that sense. But anyway, um she worked at the trilingual university uh for University of Bolzano in Bolzano. and she was telling me about how the german and italian speakers as part of their requirements have to take courses in each other's language but because they've been trained since they were little to um basically italian speakers go to the italian speaking school system and the german speakers go to the german speaking school system even though they are technically learning each other's language mentally 
there is this barrier because they go to one school, German speakers go to another. If they're in the same building, they go in through different entrances, playgrounds are segregated, lunch times are segregated because the German speakers want to make sure that their German language is quote unquote pure. Um, so basically this is being fed into their head. So now they get to university where they are expected to speak in the other person's language, but subliminally they've been trained that um, it's almost like an other. And if you learn too much of the other, then it's going to take away your own identity. So she gave this example of a German speaking student who was supposed to give a presentation in Italian and she just froze and started crying. And it didn't matter that she'd technically been taking Italian lessons since she was little. This, this barrier had been in her head for so long. And even though she needed to be able to do this in order to get a decent grade, she just completely cracked. But because that teacher had been through the system herself, she understood it. And it seems to me that this doesn't only pertain to that area, but that there's a lot of um, similarities in that the, you know, if if a language is being introduced in a negative way or as a result of negative history, which is the case of South Tyrol, it's unrealistic to assume that people are going to embrace it and accept it in a positive way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you I have gone through your research and it was very interesting. And and going through your research, basically, you know, uh, it created an idea in my head that I wanted to talk. It resonated so much, so much with me. It was so relatable that going through your book that I said, oh my God, I need to talk about my Pakistani identity as well. Mm. And thank you for writing that. And, you know, it's it's very interesting. And it's it's a great piece of work you did. Oh, and, you. you know, like you said, that in, in terms of opportunities, and I know so many people who who are not very good with English, and then they are they couldn't get the opportunities which which they would have, you know. And then the fact that you know English and Urdu was introduced um, uh, by the British in the subcontinent, the rest of the regional languages were blurred. They were yep. literally systematically destroyed. And in some you know books, I don't know the reference, but I heard that the you know, these Britishers, when they took over India, they used to destroy the regional literature. They would translate it in, 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 into English and then they would destroy that literature. Like I said, there's so much wisdom, you know, in the, in the regional scripts of Punjabi and Sindhi and, you know, uh, you know, Pashto scripts, which are the regional languages of Pakistan and even India, you know, India had a lot of rich history as well. So when you are you are trying to destroy a language, you are destroying a whole culture. Yeah. What? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I would like to, yeah. Yeah, go on. I would just like to, you know, um like to narrate another couplet which was very interesting, sort of a poetry from uh Shilja Patel. She talks about the diversity we Indians and Pakistani have in terms of language and culture and how, you know, it was restricted to one language, which is English, right? So I'm going to narrate it. Listen, my father speaks Urdu, language of dancing peacocks. 
rose water fountains even its curses are beautiful he speaks hindi saw and melodic earthy punjabi salty rich as saag paneer so she is going giving a metaphor of saag paneer is a cuisine in india and pakistan it's really right? delicious <laughs> you have tried it it's one of my favorite saag wow. paneer yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah that's that's so amazing yeah sam sawali laced with arabic he speaks gujarati solid ancestral pride five languages five different worlds yet english shrinks him down before white men yeah and you know so many times when you know from my personal experience and when i when i came to london in 2018 um as a visiting research fellow at soas that was the time when i started exploring my identity because you know people would ask me are you indian i'm like no i'm pakistani oh you don't look like pakistani i was like okay and then you know when i would you know converse with him in english and they would say how could you speak that much good, good english no you're not pakistani trust me code and uncode these were the words of the people i interacted with not from the academia but the people outside academia they would literally ask me that how could you speak so much good english and then you know i would tell them that we are a post colonial state where british ruled for years and they imposed this language on us and then i would tell them that i don't feel pride in speaking english because it was forced upon me but obviously mm-hmm. there are you know other aspect to it as well that english is an international language it is good to have a command over you know having a english language but the point here is that you should not impose one language and then try to you know destroy the rest of the reason languages mhm mhm that's the main argument here yeah absolutely um you sent me an article um from the late pakistani columnist um irfan hussain i hope i'm saying his name right and in his article he said since partition and that would be the partition between um india and pakistan pakistan has been locked in an identity crisis as the state seeks to find its place in the world why do you think this is all right so you know in order to answer that i just want to give an idea about a pakistani state for instance pakistan is a post colonial garrison state which means that the Pakistan only survives when there is a global war going on, right? For instance, in 1960s, 1970 Afghan war, and then after 9/11, Pakistan was a was a military ally of the U.S. You know, during the Afghan war, Pakistan helped uh, Mujahideens to expel Russian Russian influence from Afghanistan, and you know the U.S. Uh, along with the help of Pakistan military. they literally uh, sort of uh, strengthen mujahideen right during the one war to expel russia to contain the us wanted to contain its power in this region okay. and then after 911 pakistan became a official military ally of of us war on terror and pakistani gave their bases to us right mm-hmm. so now coming back to your question like i said that Pakistan was part of India before partition right and then Pakistan after Pakistan came into being Pakistan was a very weak state you know because most of the industry was based in Bombay or Calcutta right mm. and Pakistan was 
militarily and in terms of industry pakistan was very feeble right so pakistani needed support of a capitalist center and then at that time uh, america was showing a lot of interest in this region because of you know the cold war era the ideological war between russia and us right and then us came to our support right so pakistani basically pakistan's whole economic structure was built on the military aid by the us and the part of the aid comes from the saudi as well right mm-hmm. so in terms of all this geo strategic sort of a um power game going on between the superpowers right pakistan was born right pakistan was sort of a pakistan got strength it got a lot of money from us right and a lot of curriculum in pakistan is very west centric when okay. i started teaching pakistan studies in a public sector university and there was no mention of our colonial past there was no mention of how the british came here interesting the pakistan studies curriculum which was given to me and i sort of uh, innovated it and i you know created my own curriculum where i taught students about their colonial past as well right it was not par- part of the curriculum which was given to me by the public sector because i was teaching in a public sector university right so uh, the idea of pakistan that pakistan is still trying to find its place in the world like i told you that there's a lot of western influence in pakistan because of the reason because we were literally we got our place in the world because of the military aid by the us because all the factories were based in calcutta and india and pakistan was very weak Yeah. economically it needed a capitalist center so you know we have an a chunk of identities coming from india and then we have a chunk of identity coming from west because west invested a lot of money in pakistan and you know there's a british education system you know oa levels all the oa level exams are conducted by the british council till date right we don't have any our own state a machinery we could we, we, which could you know sort of take these exam o levels and u levels exam right so in you know pakistan is finding its identity in in you know engrossed in all of these identities which are coming through saudi because saudi, saudi arabia gives a lot of aid to pakistan as well on the basis of muslim brotherhood and then like i told you that we were the american ally military ally in this region so there is a lot of western influence and then we had a history as well south asian history rich history so mm. the, you know in between all this that pakistan had to survive because you know we have perceived threat from india as well because india is our official enemy by the way right because okay. of the in kashmir right what is happening in kashmir right so pakistan has a perceived threat from india and pakistan has a perceived from afghanistan so in order to survive pakistan took a lot of help from us saudi so in between all these uh, you know fight for survival pakistani identity is lost somewhere mm. 
Would do you think if we could take that that step for, further? This idea of a lost identity and feeling torn between whether or not we they associate with Afghanistan, whether or not they associate with Saudi Arabia, Turkey, which we'll talk about in a second, or or in response to their relationship with India. Um, do you think all of these elements um, explain why there's an emphasis by the Pakistani establishment, or is it's also called military and political elite? to define Pakistan as an uh, Islamic state, despite its historical ties to India, as well as having numerous members of society from various ethnic and religious backgrounds? Again, a very interesting question, and very relevant. I think for that, we need to go back to the history. You know, when, when Hindus and Muslims were living together in India, you know, there was an idea put forth by the, uh, by the Muslim thinkers that Muslims in India are not living in peace, right? And they proposed this idea of two-nation theory, that we have a different culture, we have a different religion, so we should have a separate homeland. And then the idea of Pakistan was executed by the, you know, the idea was conceived by Ilama Iqbal, which is the national poet of Pakistan, and then Qaeda Azam, and then Pakistan came into being. And, you know, most of the Pakistani says that, see, the two-nation theory was good because you see what is happening with Muslims in Moody's India. You know, even in India, India was a secular state, but now the present government, which is Moody, they are trying to create a Hindu Rashtra. They want to make India a Hindu uh, nation, right? Mm. So the, the idea put forward by the military has a historical root to it. Because Pakistan, when Pakistan came into being, the founders of the Pakistan proposed this idea that we needed a one nation under one religion and one language and, uh, you know, and Muslim country. We needed a Muslim country, right? And mm. that idea is coming from that history when Pakistan came into being, right? And okay. what military did was that military literally created our curriculum for their own control in this region. Because, you know, like I said, that military sort of created this perceived threat that of India, right? And, you know, this, this Kashmir issue is basically a sort of a, it's, it's basically a mode of uh, money for, for, for the military, right? Mm. Because, mm. you know, in order to, uh, in order to profit, they wanted to keep this conflict alive, right? This Kashmir okay. between India and Pakistan. So mil military sort of, uh, 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 you know, with the help of the Pakistani state, they created our curriculum as well, where they, they, they posed India as a threat to Pakistan in order to control, right? And okay. then they created this hyper-nationalized Muslim state, which they, they portrayed military as the, uh, as the military of the Muslim, uh, as the army of the Muslim Ummah, right? Okay. And this is how the, you know, sort of uh, identity was created. And, you know, even I grew up, I'll accept that, that I was very hyper-nationalistic, you know, approach. I had towards that, you know, India is our enemy and, and then Pakistani army is the, you know, sort of a savior of the, of the Muslim Ummah. It is the military. But when I grew up and, you know, when I graduated, uh, nobody, you know, in my entire school and 
my university and college there are no none of our teachers or curriculum talk about this that the identity bubble or the identity which was created by the state is not my identity and then when i graduated and i started studying you know i graduated in bioinformatics and then i started studying literature and i, I was like that the history and the you know sort of a, the identity which was created by the state and the military was completely wrong Mm. Well, just to benefit them, it it does seem like. And again, correct me if if you think this interpretation is inaccurate. But um, one thing I noticed in my own research with um, conservative German speaking parties, and it's something that came up in conversations that I had with individuals during my my fieldwork research, is that they needed to have an other. There needed to be an opposing group in order for their identity to be valid. And I wonder if in the case of the quote unquote establishment, they needed that other had to be India and without it, they couldn't really justify the objectives that they were trying to create in terms of fashioning their own, so to speak, unified Pakistan identity. Would you say that that's that's true? Absolutely, absolutely. You put it uh, very academically sound that they created this other perceived threat of the other India in order to control the masses. Mm. And in that, in in our order to you know put uh, in order to upheld the uh, you know the grand narrative of Pakistan, right, which was conceived during the partition, they sort of obliterated the rest of the regional cultures and the language and the manner. And this is this pattern of uh you know sort of a uh, uh control and you know the state machinery is intact till date because like i told you the the, the regional minorities which are pakhtuns and the balochs they have a lot of uh you know sort of variances against state because they don't pakistani state till they don't find strength in their diversity they are just trying to create this um you know and again i would like to add this that why we are talking about that military because military is the main player in pakistan they yeah. call the shots military has the de facto veto power of pakistani politics till date and you know the military is the continuation of the british colonial army right mm. there are there are very few reforms which came after the partition they again they have their cans and they have their own you know uh, you know style of controlling the masses they have and they they are you know they again there are so many people still in uh, still in pakistan the youth who are charged and who are against india and they pose india as their enemy and they they could do anything to save pakistan and and to save the muslim army which is pakistani army which they pose but they are not they are not mm. fighting the muslim they are not fighting for the muslim they are fighting for their own interest to because they have a lot of corporate in, interest attached to pakistani military as well because they have they own the largest corporations in pakistan as well okay in, in pakistan so yes you are absolutely right they created this other they created this perceived threat in order to control the masses okay so what does the what does turkey have to do with all of this with regards to pakistani identity Because that that came out of left field. I'm, I even I, I 
<laughs> I was like, I'm pretty sure Turkey's not near Pakistan, but I went on Google and I was like, just in case I'm missing something. I'm like, nope, definitely not near Pakistan. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that, I think that's really funny as well, because, you know, one reason why Pakistan, you know, relates so much to the Turkish because of their Muslim. Uh, and the Ottoman identity. Empire, correct? Yeah, Ottoman Empire and, you know. And another reason that one interesting pattern which I observed that, you know, the Turkish soap operas, the disease, you know, even Fatima Bhutto, who's a very famous Pakistani writer, she okay. even wrote a book that how these Turkish soap operas are taking the world. And particularly in Pakistan, they are very famous because those few of those, uh, you know, uh, Artigul Ghazi, one famous you know, drama, which everyone watched in my family, my sisters. I have not watched it, by the way. But it's very interesting um, drama. It talks about the Muslim history, right? Okay. And that is exactly, you know, because the Pakistani state, like I told you, that Pakistani state did not, was not successful in creating a unified identity for the Pakistani people, right? Okay. We have taken chunks from Saudi, we have taken chunks from West, we have taken chunks from India and then we have an Indus Valley civilization here as well, where, you know, the late Vedic relig uh, religion was also, uh, you know, sort of uh, um, seen in, in, in this territory, right, in, in this Valley civilization. So, like I said, that Pakistan has not an identity of itself. So it tries to, you know, find it, their identities or find their ties with sometimes with Saudi and sometimes with Turkish and sometimes with the West. So those Pakistani, you know, Pakistani, there's a lot of fever going on amongst the Pakistani public to watch the Turkish dramas because they talk about the Muslim history, which is sort of a missing from the Pakistani content, by the way. Pakistani, you know, state narrative is uh, a lot more, you can say they are very sort of, a, they don't talk about the Muslim identity you know the okay. industry so it's, they find yeah. the muslim ties with the turkish uh dramas and his disease and you know soap operas because um from what you'd sent me it seemed like these these soap operas are basically approved by the government because they provide a narrative of you know, history that is considered appropriate for the masses. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, our former Prime Minister Imran Khan, he officially, I think he started, uh, you know, gave uh, instructions to the Pakistan, uh, you know, the Pakistani state-owned television to air these uh, sort of a Turkish dramas, which are, which are talking about the Muslim history, right? Mm. So, Absolutely, you're right. It is, again, pr propagated by state as well. But again, like I said, that when you're not going to accept the diversity in your own region, Pakistan, and then you're going to find your sort of a ties with the rest of the countries like Turkey and Saudi Arabia, and it is not going to work uh, productively, you know, mm. it's not going to uh, prove to be something beneficial for the Pakistani or yeah so it will yeah. almost have a very shallow effect on the pakistani because because it's almost like they're how do i put this um 
trying to find their idea of truth through somebody else's lens. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. So I think the Muslim identity has a, you know, it's a, another debate for some other time. Hmm. Uh, but uh, the Pakistani state, like you asked a question that where do Pakistan find itself in the international arena? So the Pakistani state, in order to stick to its original plan of, you know, monolithic identity, the idea on, on, on the basis um, of which Pakistan was conceived, they are still trying to, you know, stick to that idea, no matter that idea is destroying Pakistan's identity. Hmm. And if we could just take all this information and, and think about how it relates to the theme of the series, um, what voices would you say have been lost as a result of Pakistan's identity crisis and how can they be reclaimed? Like I said, that there's so much beauty to the regional culture and languages. You know, there are so many scripts which are written in Punjabi, in, in Sindhi. Those voices, the regional voices, are completely lost. You know, Gosh. somewhere between the state-imposed narrative of this monolithic identity of one religion, one language, one culture, the regional beauty is lost. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you when a language is lost, a culture is lost. When you I agree. The language, a whole culture is destroyed. Mm. So, like I said, that. I'm trying to, you know, I'm I'm writing uh, pieces for the Brown History Newsletter, which I'll share with you as well. And I'm trying to write from my own experience, which I had living with my grandmother in my village. We are trying to, you know, now the generation, they are trying to reclaim their representation. And like like I said in the start, that this sort of uh, identity, which was, imposed upon me by the Pakistani state and then, you know, the, the colonial identity as well, which was imposed to me by the by the British, it did not save me. Mm-hmm. Every time I'm stuck, I go back to my to my village. I go back mm-hmm. to my grandmother. Because that identity, which was quite multi-diverse, which was which taught me to be tolerant towards other religions and other cultures, that saves me at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't get it, you know. I I even try to wrote for uh, SOAS newsletter as well uh, about this that Pakistani that about time that Pakistani state fa- should find strength in the diversity instead of you know trying to completely you know uh, blur the regional languages. They should you know sort of find they should. Start, they should start working towards, you know, bringing these diverse regional languages into the state, um, uh, you know, uh, state m- uh, mode of, uh, you know. Preservation, maybe? Absolutely. But there's no, I think there are many, you know, there are such individual uh, people who are sort of working towards, you know, preserving their culture and their languages. but. On the state level, one thing they do is that they sprinkle the culturally diverse people here and there and they just produce the music uh, videos and that's it. You know, there's a Coke studio 
going it's almost on. like a tourism approach rather Absolutely. than a practical or a realistic one. Exactly. They try to, you know, through music, things are changing. And through, you know, music, people are bringing, but that's it. It's just pertained to the music. On the state level, like I said, that, you know, English is the language and then Urdu is the official language of Pakistan. And, you know, when you look at the world, in Canada and New Zealand, there are many official languages. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I don't know Pakistan's state is, and this is exactly one of the reasons as well that Pakistan is becoming internally very weak because they couldn't find strength in their diversity. They couldn't cater the regional differences. That's a really interesting point. Um, I really, really like that we're talking about this and I, I would imagine that there are a lot of listeners out there who could relate this to their own backgrounds and their own sense of self and how they fit in the bigger picture, not only within their own communities, but their own countries and worldwide. Um, but I have to say for now, that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank Sonia again for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional information on today's topic will be available on our website in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this series and would like to check out our bonus content, then consider becoming a patron starting at one pound per month. It's support from our patrons that really helps to keep the show going. By becoming a patron, you get access to extra bonus content, patron-only interviews, panels, workshops, and much more. To join, just head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.